and welcome to the Future Proof podcast from the north of England with Sarah and Stephen Waddington. We'll be talking about what's hot and what's not on the internet in marketing, media and public relations. Hello, Sarah. Good morning, Stephen. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. We're, we're surviving month two of lockdown. Uh, packed podcast today. Uh, we're going to go to Cheshire uh, and a, a local parish council meeting. We're going to talk about an IPA report on share of search. You've got some comments about the outgoing chair of the Charity Commission. When we're getting out of lockdown, what that might look like. Talk a little bit about the market. Let's just crack on. Um, so this viral video we are all Jackie Weaver, right? This Clark bringing together a chaotic and bad-tempered parish council meeting. It could have been a CIPR meeting, to be fair. It could have been, yeah. Oh, it's a beautiful piece of just video. 18 minutes of audio and visual gold. It's yeah, what I aspire good. to when I'm retired. <laughs> Do you think we'll see Jackie Weaver on, on Netflix, maybe? She'd be great. She's definitely the new Carol Baskin. Yeah, clearly a, a woman daring to try and bring order to a, a male parish, male-dominated parish council meeting. Doesn't go well, does it? Uh, must view though. Very interesting piece. IPA announced uh, a piece of work. In fact, they did it via an advertisement. I was going to say you saw this as an advert page, in the FT, didn't you? Back page of the FT about um, a new metric that they're calling share research. Actually, it's, a, it's not a new metric. It's a metric based on piece of work that's about 10 years old by Les Bennett's that focuses on share of market basically says that an organization's market share will track its share of advertising and then map that work onto share of search interesting piece of work there's limited evidence that it has validity outside FMCG markets but you know it's an example of the ad industry as the ad industry does going heavy very heavy into into a metric and god they need to with um, the state of digital advertising the efficacy of it and the the issue coming down the track with cookies on browsers they always go assertively though i mean i do you've got to admire them because i do like an organization such as the ipa which will take a stance stand up for its members and and its industry and be very clear and and you know put money behind it it's, it's yeah, good to see that investment think- yeah, yeah, and you know, going live with a campaign with a court page on the back page of the weekend FT is certainly assertive. It wouldn't happen ever in the PR industry, would it? We'd be still talking about putting together a report and how we constitute the committee to do that. Bit like the you Parish s- Council. <laughs> bit like the Parish Council, yeah. Uh, uh, let's move on. You spotted a speech, didn't you? The outgoing. Yeah, very current there, news. Um, it, we're recording this on, on Friday the 5th of February and uh, the news this morning is that Tory peer um, Tina Stowell, who is stepping down as the chair of the Charity Commission, she, <laughs> a really contentious speech. She, basically, the Guardian have reported this speech in which she's basically said that she doesn't think that charities should take a political stance I find this quite contentious and posted in this in your community. And I think other other people are finding it contentious too. Basically, according to the commission, charities can take a position as long as it's in line with their charitable objects. But clearly, it's just something that she doesn't like. So they launched investigations, for example, into the National Trust over its publication of a report into some of its properties links with slavery, which I think is a 
brilliant thing to have done. And Bernardo's was accused of political activism because they published a blog post on racial inequality and white privilege. Again, I think these are really important things to be doing. And um, it's great that they took a leadership role. But apparently, these are things that uh, the Charity Commission have not particularly liked. Now, it's interesting because charity figures have, according to The Guardian, responded furiously to this. And it's quite interesting that obviously it's, it's causing a bit of a debate, in, like I say, in, our, in your PR community. I, I just find it staggering that in this day and age that uh, and maybe it's just this lady, that Lady Style can't read the room. Um, my view is that if an organisation can take a stance and it's in line with its purpose and its values, why wouldn't you? I've got nothing further to add to any of that. I agree with it all. Yeah, an organisation, a charity presumably exists both to uh, address an issue and to lobby on an issue. Absolutely. Um, I mean, to be honest, in your community, um, Sean Fleming put it perfectly. He said, charity should stop being politically motivated, says the politically motivated charity commission. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to giggle. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so let's talk about recruitment. The PR industry is bouncing back. Yeah. It's bouncing back. And the evidence of that, my evidence of that, I've recently started working with the uh, recruiter, Ruben Sinclair. And they cover the PR industry and digital marketing industry. And they're seeing a huge surge in demand, demand from clients, both agencies and organisations for talent. The challenge is there's a shortage at both uh, senior level because people are reluctant to move because of lockdown and also junior level organisations are, are reluctant to hire entry level candidates because of the challenges of onboarding uh, and, and learning and development during during lockdown. So if you're an organisation that, that, you know, has sorted that, you got an opportunity to snap up some good talent. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because you're also talking about the, pe- the fact that people are putting themselves in the market but not necessarily moving. Yeah, so, that, so th- there's a lot of sort of three types of person looking for jobs at the moment uh, or candidates on the market. There's those that have been furloughed or made unemployed, you know, almost certainly with, with very good reason because of the contractions in the market, you know, and there's some really good talent there. Uh, and then there's active and passive people, people actively looking for jobs and and also those that, that aren't but organisations are trying to maybe poach you know the last category really hard to shift active lookers equally you know huge amount of nervousness around things like onboarding notice periods and such like so yeah the, 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 there's just a complete lack of candidate confidence in the market. I just don't understand why you would sign yourself up with a recruiter and then go all the way through a recruitment process and then not take a job if you're offered it unless you have very very good reason it just seems very odd and very unprofessional in some respects unless you have good reason for that. Well, it's a reflection of the human psyche. People are obviously uh, clearly doing this, you know, when it comes to the crunch, the moment of signing Panicking. a contract, Maybe. not not moving. What do we, we need the government to show us the way out of, of lockdown and start giving us some... Well, I can't um, wait for them to publish this pathway. Definitive plan. Yeah, the trouble is, we're, you know, we're in an, an ever-changing situation, aren't we? Uh, but it does look like um, the vaccine, um, we're making good progress with the vaccine, I mean, the last data I looked at is that the entire population of the UK should be uh, have at least their first vaccine by June or July. And we should applaud that because actually it's been a massive success so far, that vaccination programme. Mm. And it's nice to see something go right for a change. OK, so you yeah. talked about onboarding, um, which actually is an interesting point about what happens next. Once everybody's been vaccinated and it seems to be safe to move around again and they start to open up the economy bit by bit. Are we going to see 
people moving back into offices, our agencies, uh, you know, going to go back. We're seeing an awful lot in the PR media about the fact that a lot of people are saying, oh, no, they're going to stick to remote working or they're going to try and introduce a hybrid method. I, I personally think that's not what will play out long term. I think we will need as well as see uh, almost a wholesale return into kind of like formal working environment again. But my hope is that actually that will lead to agile working patterns in the way that we hadn't seen before because remote working has proven that nine to five in an office is, is not the key to productivity. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think some sort of hybrid arrangement bringing the benefit of flexibility uh, that we discovered during COVID and the lot, various lockdowns, managers have realised, you know, people can get on, can, you know, do get on with their work. And, and we started to recognise that actually it's not presence that's important. It's, it's you know, doing a job and delivering. Absolutely. It's, it's really interesting. So I've talked to a few people this week and, and before, and it seems that a lot of people are hedging their bets and not having an office environment or certainly like trying to stay out of office where they haven't got a lease in place for this year. And I think that's probably the right thing to do. But um, is it? Re- I was um, reading with interest something on the Cambridge Judge um, executive education program I'm on and they have been talking about the impact of remote working and the impact on productivity and it's been quite fascinating so they've been replicating uh, I think it was a 1948 study which looked at characteristics of high performing teams and one of the key thing to that this study found was proximity and of course this is one thing that the pandemic has taken away from its proximity to people and um, they thought that with the changes in society and um, developments in technology that this would obviously be different because now we can work from home we can use zoom and teams and any other technology to, to connect and actually it's not the case and they say that there are two elements that you can't replicate when you have a remote workforce and uh, the first one being this transfer of tacit knowledge so just being in the same room of someone and being close to them you pick up all kinds of cues and knowledge that totally you can't agree. do uh, and secondly uh, what they call serendipity in terms of that's not to do with necessarily water cooler moments but just even in meetings and, and planned get-togethers there is something about being in the same place together at the same time where there are kind of like moments of inspiration and things change or things happen or you, you just come up with a, a new route forward. So I found that was really, really quite fascinating. So, you know, 40 odd years out, they've re- repeated this study to find exactly the same thing. And uh, certainly their advice was to look at ways when it's safe to do so, to find ways to, to kind of create proximity if you can do that, even if that's by sitting on a bench in a park over the coming months. But um, fascinating stuff and, and just really thought provoking for anybody who's, who's humming and hiring about what to do in the future. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, that, that the 1940s was such a period of thinking and innovation after the war. Um, you know, the, the another piece of work that I came across this week, because um, I was reading uh, this pub- uh, study that had been published, uh, it was commissioned by HM Treasury, it's published uh, this week, uh, The Economics of Biodiversity, 600-page document that looks, examines why... Uh, societies failing the natural environment actually oh this is the descriptive review right yeah the descriptive review um it takes you back to an original piece of work and thinking that was done in the 1940s when economists argued that organizations should be uh, should account markets should account for societal protection so biodiversity and and the natural environment and, and such like and here we are likewise 80 years on and we're looking back at this and and celebrating this piece of work as if you know as if it's uh, radical new thinking you know it's a 600 page document 
and it's it's hard going, but it's full of you know enlightening case studies of success. It needs really urgent action. And what yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed. I wrote a plowed through this document as you know um the start of the week when it was published wrote a blog post about it inevitably you know and for all the pr industry celebrates purpose and and you know the need to align itself with esg uh and and societal values absolutely no interest in this in this issue whatsoever Uh, if you write a blog post about seo and uh, or aba then everyone clambers across it you write something about you know something thoughtful based on a a serious piece of work no interest whatsoever i'm just Um, laughing because as you just said if we're now 80 years on from that original report and uh i was talking about the 1940 study and said 40 that's because i still think it's the 80s (laughs) i really enjoy watching it's a sin the other day because i was just like this music is amazing (laughs) yeah so that original word that the um the, that isn't actually cited in the uh, desk up to review, but uh, the original work by Carl Polanyi was a book called The Great Transformation. But you no, know, as you said, though, fascinating era, because that's also when the CIPR then Institute of Public Relations were set up, all again for the benefit of society. It was how could they improve communication between people and organisations? And just they you go back to the founding members' purpose for the Institute, it's, it's fantastic. And, um, you know, that's what we went as presidents tried very hard to to remember and put at the core of the work that we did and the, and the work plan when we were there. It's interesting stuff. Oh, and I yeah. want to talk now about a really fascinating book that I, um, well, I didn't read because I've now all of a sudden discovered Audible. So I listened to it uh, and it was fantastic. And I really enjoyed that experience too. Although I did find it a bit difficult not having a book I could go back to to find particular passengers. But it was brilliant in terms of being able to listen to this at different points of the day um, without having to pick up a book and set the time aside so I could be washing up or walking the dog. Anyway, I digress. Please do pick up or find a copy or listen to Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers book. It's just a fascinating listen about the assumptions we make about people He talks about strangers, but also it's the same applies to the people that we know. And he talks ultimately, um, to kind of paraphrase him and, and, and condense it right down, about how we as humans default to truth. So basically we have our human lie detector within us and we naturally set this to off so that even when there are red flags with people's behaviour, we naturally want to believe that they're not true and we will rationalise that in order to see what we want to see rather than what is actually happening. And it's just, you know, it's about deception and how people act and, and how we, when we meet people as well, we also become biased by the way they look. And it, it's just it's just absolutely fascinating. There's loads and loads of different case studies. There's things about CIA agents. He talks about Amanda Knox, who you might remember was implicated in that um, terrible murder in, in Italy and then exonerated. Um, there's, there's all sorts in there. But if you want to know a little bit more about behavioral psychology and how and when to trust people, how to build that trust and, and what to look out for, it's, it's well worth a listen. I, I absolutely enjoyed it and was fascinated from start to finish. Good. Sounds like a good book. I won't pick it up to read because you listen to it on Audible. Was that on Audible? That was on Audible, yeah. yeah Although other books, uh, online book services are available. <laughs> uh, right, let's uh, let's wind it up. Um, I just wanted to flag a couple of things. Through the Future Proof community, we're 
sticking out a survey uh, looking at emergent issues in public relations um, and the areas where individuals need, practitioners need to have confidence in speaking, being across issues and, and speaking within the, those organisations. I just talked about the issue of biodiversity, a lot of organisations, a lot of practitioners bang on about purpose, but are they actually aligned to, to the issues around ESG and also emergent issues and such as such as AI? So that we're, we're publishing that through Future Proof uh, in the next week. Uh, and also a conference that I'm organising, a lockdown unconference, where I've invited uh, um, people to submit proposals to speak for, for five minutes, four sessions during the course of an hour with, with Q&As. Um, hopefully that'll be a big good event on Friday, the 26th of April at lunchtime. So look out for that as well. Fantastic. Well, I think that's all from us this week. Yeah, action packed. Uh, until next time. Thank you, Sarah. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Future Proof Podcast with Sarah and Stephen Waddington. You can follow Sarah on Twitter at Mrs. Underscore Wads and Stephen at Wads. For more information about Future Proof, visit futureproofingcoms.co.uk. Until next time, see you on the internet.